Greetings again, everyone. First, I want to thank Mr. Jimmy Fulbright down in the Houston area for sending me this article, Heirs to the Austrian Empire. Although we do take the Wall Street Journal, I want to thank some other people down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for sending me a copy of the Sun Sentinel in this article, Jewish Group Works to Build Third Temple. We have people all around the United States and around the world, for that matter, who are helping in the work of the watchman. They are watching continually in their newspapers and news magazines for articles of their creation of the American family and the fabric of our society here, the drug scene, whether it has to do with the possibility of the building of a temple in Jerusalem because of their belief in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, and Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in a holy place where it ought not. Then know the destruction thereof is not. In Luke 21:36, Jesus Christ said, Watch you therefore, and pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Two things to happen if you watch and pray. Many of you in the audience were no doubt in the military service. When I was in the military service in the Navy during the Korean War, I had to stand watch. Oftentimes it was in a gun director high above the island, as they called it, in an aircraft carrier. And in that gun director, I was a trainer on the radar, which meant that the big 5-inch 38 barrels would go laterally rather than vertically. And there was a pointer who operated them vertically, and I had a radar set in front of me with a little pedal. When I would catch a blip on the radar screen, I could lock it into automatic and tap a little pedal with my foot, and from that time on, the guns would just follow along as this airplane was flying around the sky. Very simple job. A watchman on a submarine would clamber up to what they call a cigarette deck and stand there with his binoculars, and each one was assigned only one quarter of the ship's horizon, from the bow to the port side, a beam, and from the port side, a beam to the stern, and so on. And he would just continually scan the far horizon, the near horizon, the sky, and then back down for periscope of another submarine or a ship. Very simple job. A watchman anciently in ancient Israel stood on the corner of the wall. He didn't possess binoculars. He merely looked across the far landscape to see if there was a dust cloud approaching. Or if it was raining, he had a harder job. But he was a watchman for one purpose, that was to give an advance warning to all the other people who were there, free to go about their daily way of living and their pursuits, their jobs, and so on, because they were confident that someone else was doing the watching. And they didn't have to all, every day, clamber up to the top of the wall in the city and spend the entire day wondering if an enemy was approaching. They had watchmen to do that. Ezekiel is one of the prophets whose lifetime was devoted to a very strange commission. Because, you see, Ezekiel was told, go, get you unto Pharaoh, and he never did. He was told, go, get you unto those of Moab, and he never went. He was told to go to Edom and Ammon. He was told to get unto his own people and to witness unto them, and he never got there. Because Ezekiel was a young Israelitic 
individual of perhaps only his middle or late teens when all of this began to happen to him and was one of the captives by the river Tabor when visions of God were given to him. And the only trip he ever took, so far as we can tell in the book of Ezekiel, outside of that concentration camp where he spent his life, was either a literal catching up by the Spirit of God when he came to Jerusalem and saw what they were doing inside the city, which he covers in several of his chapters, or else it was in the mind's eye as John was projected forward in his imagination or a vivid technicolor-like dream that was so realistic to him that he said he was carried forward into the day of the Lord in his vision that became the book of Revelation. I have insisted that since Ezekiel's message is largely written about 127 years after the northern ten tribes of Israel disappeared from the land, and Ezekiel is then carried captive when Jerusalem fell by the king of Babylon long after the Assyrian Empire had disappeared and tens of thousands of Assyrians, the ones who were called the Chathi and the Halmani, their leading tribe, and the word Aleman or Alemania today means German in Latin, had emigrated or migrated along the confluences of various rivers and valleys, leaving their names and waymarks along the way over into Central and Northwestern Europe. And here Ezekiel is given one message after another about the future captivity of Israel. Now, there's no doubt whatsoever about the date, by the way. Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and Catholics alike. Every Bible bookstore contains Bible helps, like Unger's or Halley's or any Bible dictionary. And all of them, all of them agree on the date of the captivity of the Jewish people. It is not a matter of sectarianism. It is not the private information belonging to one cult or one church that Ezekiel, when he begins to write, was a member of the Jewish community carried captive by the king of Babylon, and that he wrote about an impending captivity of Israel when your Bible says that every Israelite from 718 to 721 in birth death, 721 to 718 because they're coming closer to B.C., in waves of invasions, Every Israelite was removed from the land of northern Israel, and it said none of them returned unto this day. By the writing of the time of the closing of the canon of the New Testament, including those that were certain segments that were touched up by Ezra, who was like a scribe, and helped close out the New Testament. I should say the Old Testament, I beg your pardon, the Old Testament of the Bible. In the third chapter of Ezekiel, he is told to eat a roll, which is symbolic of digesting a prophetic message. And it made his belly very sour but in his mouth it was sweet as honey. And he told me, verse 4 of the third chapter of Ezekiel, Go, get you unto the house of Israel. How is he going to do that? It is now way down about 540 B.C. But in 718 B.C., they had all disappeared. And they were not to be found anywhere in the land. So Ezekiel never got to the leaders of Israel. He never went down to Egypt. Ezekiel didn't have some carte blanche and tens of thousands of dollars of their kind of money. He wasn't free to travel around. He didn't show up on the steps of the great pyramid of Giza and preach to the Pharaoh, but here are chapters in Ezekiel dealing with warnings against Egypt. Chapters in the book of Ezekiel dealing with warnings against the nation we identify today as Turkey and nations surrounding 
present-day Israel in the land of Palestine. Whole chapters dealing with the house of Israel. Notice in verse 17, Son of man, I have made you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, that you give him, and you give him not warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. Why? Well, if you look in the Bible, it says to save his life. Now, not everyone is going to say that is your motive. Many people really question the motive of a prophet. They don't question the motive of a fireman or a man on the fire department resuscitation squad or the man in the emergency truck when you dial 911. Uh, they think that they want to get help immediately. But for some reason, teachers and educators who go into classrooms from the 5th all the way to the 12th grade of our educational system and show people in the final throes of drug addiction or show the helpless little children who were born already addicted because their mothers were on crack or heroin when they were developing in the womb or show the bloody scenes of mayhem and violence and knife-wielding thugs or people shot down in the streets because of crime, which is all drug-related, they're not always welcome. There are many people who hate a warning. They hate a witness. They don't want to be told that they need to change their entire way of life and their approach towards things, whether it's drugs or sex or alcohol or entertainment or whatever it is, and that unless they do, they're going to pay an incredible penalty. When you deal with that kind of thing, when it's perhaps a parent that is trying desperately to communicate, when you didn't communicate at the very early age where they're very sensitive in a particular part of their anatomy and you can really communicate, and then by the time they're in their mid-teens and you have never been able to really communicate in those very formative years prior to the fifth birthday and even before that, when you could have really gotten their attention, it's forever too late. And this tiresome, monotonous, dumb, stupid cycle continues to repeat itself generation after generation after generation. And a parent tries to talk to a child, 13, 14, 16, 17. You may as well be preaching in Latin to a Greek. <clears throat> they don't not only want to hear what you're saying, they wouldn't understand if they're listening. And by now you cannot communicate. And inevitably the tiresome old swinging of the pendulum occurs. Those kids grow up. They get married. They become parents. And their children go to be 16. And then they try to communicate. And they can't. And only then, when they're in their 40s or 50s, do these people look back and say, oh, if I only had listened to my parents. But we try it, don't we? I mean, the generations come and go, and it just continues on and on and on. People are not very kind to those who are in the process of idol smacking. I said that idol bashing can get you killed. You can wander into the middle of some kind of a strange uh, worship session down in the South Pacific Islands or in some part of Bangladesh or India. You could walk perhaps into some temple in India and chase the cattle out of there. And probably the people who worship those cattle and think they are gods would try to kill you and maybe succeed. So Ezekiel as a warning or a witness 
as a messenger bearing a warning or a witness, as the watchman, was told time and again that their foreheads would be as adamant as flint. But he was told, do not be dismayed by their hard looks. I will make your forehead as adamant as flint also. He was told that his motive in warning the wicked from his wicked way was what? Verse 18, to save his life. And what is the motive of a mother with tears in her eyes who is just using every bit of, of elocution and uh, loquaciousness and verbiage and speaking ability and body language and gestures and everything she knows how to deter a child from doing something which is going to either destroy her or his mind or body or wreck their life from then on, and all oftentimes to no avail. Believe me, I know the feeling. I get letters from people who would dearly love to kill me. I get letters from people who hate my guts, so to speak, and I have never met them. I don't know who in the world they are. They just don't like what I preach. They don't like what I say to them. I was sent a comic book by one of our ministers recently, and in this comic book the person has a lot of truth, but it's very demoniacal in a lot of ways because some of the pictures and the specters that they present people are going to go down to hell. And in the comic book, an illustrated comic book, comic book allegedly trying to get across Christian values, showing the traditional ideas of Christ and the angels with their wings and Christ looking like the usual Christ on the wall of the Bible Baptist bookstore. Baptist Bible bookstore, I should say. Here was a segment talking about people going down to hell, showing these demons, showing the people about to go down to hell, and had a little asterisk by it, and it said, and Garner Ted Armstrong and the Jehovah's Witnesses make fun of this idea of going down to hell. You see, it does say in the Bible that the time is going to come when they that kill you will think they do God a service. They're going to think they are ridding the world of a real menace. So it's not necessarily a very thankful job, and yet what was the motive? We look into the lives of the prophets, and not a one of them volunteered. Every single one of them was called, and oftentimes against their will. Isaiah argued that he was a man of unclean lips. And Jeremiah said that he was too young. He couldn't carry the word of God. And Amos said, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I was just out gathering sycamore fruit one day when the word of the eternal came to me and I had no choice. Sometimes they were absolutely stupefied, put in a trance, just scared beyond measure, like Daniel, where they could hardly stand or even look upon this great white personage that spoke to them. Warn the wicked to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity if he doesn't turn from it, but his blood will I require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, that's the natural result, but you have delivered your soul. There's a great deal more in the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel that I won't turn to and read about the work of the watchman. Now Christ's command, watch you therefore, and pray always, that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man is in the 21st chapter of Luke, as I mentioned. I want to turn to that very briefly to show you something else that it says, because this is Luke's version of the famous Olivet Prophecy of Matthew 24. 
He talks about nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom in verse 10, and earthquakes in diverse places, and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. But before all of these, the very worst of those, and even though there was a big earthquake in Mindanao yesterday, and there had been earthquakes in Japan, and a huge one in California, and there had been a volcano blowing its stack in Alaska that caused all four engines on a 747 to cut out yesterday, and people screaming in terror as it plummeted 25,000 feet before the captain could start the engines again, would have wiped out the engines because volcanic ash not only deprived the engines of oxygen, but it also is an abrasion, abrasive uh, substance and would have completely ruined all those engines and all the other systems in the airplane. Probably you saw that on CNN. But just yesterday, a lot of terrorized people up there. So we remember Mount St. Helens and all the earthquakes and this type of thing, but that's really mild compared to what is going to occur. Before all these, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues, that's churches, and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now that is... Being brought is language that implies that you are under arrest and you are persona non grata. It doesn't mean that you are being given the red carpet treatment and that you're coming there at their invitation. It does not mean that you're being received or accepted as a great dignitary at all. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your heart not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed, both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. There are many in the Church of God International who have already, in a very limited way, though it had nothing to do with the state and it had nothing to do with actual threats against their property or their lives in most cases, they've already had that occur. There are people whose lives have been shattered, who are members of the Church of God International, whose mates divorced them because of another church claiming that a CGI member is an unbeliever. Now that's about as drastic as you can get in betraying someone. It's about as as far out a, a blatant lie and a perversion of the truth as you could even begin to imagine. Calling someone who listens to the kind of sermons you listen to, who sings the kind of songs you sing, who worships Jesus Christ of Nazareth, worships God the Father in heaven above, obeys the Sabbath, the holy days, all these doctrines, all of the wonderful truth of God, believe it every single day. Practice it, pray to your God, and you're called an unbeliever? So you can see that even people who are religiously inclined, and in fact some of them who would like to think they are a member of the true church, are capable of the cruelest possible treatment of their very own flesh and blood, their life's partners. It's strange what religion can do to people. You shall be betrayed. How can a parent betray a child? How can a child betray his mother and his dad? How can a brother betray his own beloved brother, a sister, a sister? But Christ said that will occur, didn't he? Kinsfolk and friends, and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. Notice, of you, some of you is implied. And of course the word in italics has been added, and appropriately so. 
and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not inherit your head perish. It sounds like a contradiction. It's not. It's dealing with a group, and that group at large is made up of many, who knows how many thousands or hundreds of people. And some of them who would be a better witness are going to be called upon to give their last testimony with the last breath of their lives. And others are going to be spared because God knows they could not survive that kind of treatment. In your patience, possess you your soul. Now, we get to a specific prophecy. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Now, over in Matthew 24, and I won't turn to that, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place where it ought not. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then know that the destruction of Jerusalem is nigh. And he says, Then let them which be in Judea, and it says the same thing here in verse 21, flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it, that is the city or the Judean area, depart out, and let not them that are in the countries anywhere else other than Judea, enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, and all things which are written may be fulfilled. I wonder how many of us, when we saw with a shock in the last month, month and a half, the incredible series of events unfolding in Eastern Europe, in a matter of weeks since we were sitting here and the Cold War was still going on and all of Eastern Europe was still securely behind the Iron Curtain, and East Germans were oppressed, and Czechoslovaks and Polish people were oppressed. And only a few weeks ago, the idea that 100,000 of them would be shown out demonstrating the Wenceslas Square in Prague would have been met with nothing less than several hundred T-34 Soviet tanks crushing them under their treads, just like they did the students in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. And yet in a matter of weeks, as we come back and forth to Sabbath services, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and to a large extent, even Romania, where they're beginning to have a lot of riots and demonstrations now. Hungary, East Germany, nation after nation after nation has had sometimes, in the case of East Germany, three separate governments topple within a period of weeks. And so here we are with one prophecy after another beginning to fall into place. How many of us are doing this? That when you see these things begin to happen, Jesus Christ said, then look up because you know that your redemption draweth nigh. He gave the analogy of the fig tree, that they talk about summer must be near when they see the shoot of the fig tree putting out because they know it's springtime. And he said, when you see these things, then look up, verse 28. I wonder how many of us have had a strange little chill kind of creep up the back of our spine to realize that as we see the unification of Germany and the creation of the United States of Europe coming nearer, that we are in fact living in what may well be the last decade of civilization as we have known it. We may have three, five, nine, ten, or eleven years, and I'm not setting dates. It could go on to 2004, 2007. I don't really know whether that is so or not. But let's do a little speculating today. I want to turn to a prophecy in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation and show you something out of the Bible and just a brief reference to a couple of other articles which were sent in to show you some of the things we can watch for and that we can speculate about with regard to the fulfillment of many of these prophecies. Here is the beast power, verse 12 of Revelation 17, 
The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Now, all of you know basically that this represents the very same governments that are represented by the ten toes of the great image in Daniel, the second chapter, and verse 40 to 44, that the great stone that is symbolic of Christ that is cut out without hands that smashes the great image on its feet. The great image, which represents all the four successive world-ruling empires, becomes like dust. It is blown away like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. The rock that is there seems to grow until it becomes something that actually fills the entirety of the earth. And it says in verse 44 to Daniel 2, in the days of these kings, the ten that are smashed on the toes with a mixture of miry clay and iron, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed nor left to other people, but it shall fill the entire earth, an obvious reference to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Here are these ten horns which you saw are ten kings. Now, for many, many years in writing the articles that we have, we've said perhaps they are premiers or prime ministers or presidents. Maybe they are a secretary general or some other designation, but we know that they are the head of a government. Let me just propose something to you briefly, because it said they have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour, a very short time, with the beast. Is that literal or is it figurative? Surely if it's figurative, we have no problem with the prophecy. But you know, until fairly recently, as a matter of fact, until 1948, in some few cases in Central Europe, there were kings sitting on thrones. When Hitler began to march into certain of those countries, there were kings sitting on thrones. King Paul of Greece, for example, and King Gustav of Yugoslavia. There are royal families throughout all of Europe, in Bulgaria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, East Prussia, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, in Austria, and in Germany. I have a book about all three of the major houses of those royal families that have ruled over much of that part of the world, including Russia, and were oftentimes related because many of those families married, and of course conquest in those days was oftentimes by the marital bed as it was by the force of arms. And you read European history from the 1600s on up to modern times and the time of the beginning of World War I and the dismantlement of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and you will see what I'm saying is absolutely true. So it's interesting that one of our members down in the Houston area, and yes, we do take the Wall Street Journal, and by the way, don't they just say that uh, those of you out there on the tape program or those who are really interested in these things happening in Europe and who, like me, cannot wait to get the evening news and can't wait to devour the next newspaper or the news magazine because you're really interested in knowing what's going on, we do appreciate very much the clippings you send in. Send us all you want. But generally, I would avoid clipping out, clipping some Time, Newsweek, United States News and World Report, The Economist from Britain, or The Wall Street Journal, because we take every one of those, we read them, or even the, the weekly issue of The Washington Post. But any other newspapers, the local papers, oftentimes it's a wire service and they repeat it endlessly, but sometimes some papers pick it up and some don't because the wire service is clicking away in thousands of newspaper offices all over the country all the time. And some papers choose to use some interesting little article for filler. We may miss it. So we appreciate all those eyes out there reading, perusing material, watching television, taking note of what is happening, 
and if they send it in to us, and this gentleman even underlined it conveniently and brought certain points to my attention, we do appreciate it. And that way, you also are doing the work of the watchman. You're making sure that you are watching. I know that your appetite is whetted, and your antenna are cranked out, and you are alert, and you're reading and listening and watching, but also you're sending it in here so perhaps I can use portions of it in our publications or in a sermon as I'm doing today. This was in December 8th issue of Wall Street Journal of this year, Heirs to the Austrian Empire. I'll give you a few excerpts from Mikulov, Czechoslovakia. When the champagne-colored Volkswagen from Vienna pulls up here at the border, it's not just another routine crossing. As soon as the guard flips open the driver's passport, his eyes widen, and he respectfully invites the driver to get out of the car. For the next 20 minutes, the guard and his colleagues hold up the traveler, less to interrogate him than to seek his counsel on the nation's economic situation. The man in the VW is Prince Karl von Schwarzenberg head of a noble European house whose vast properties once included a good chunk of what is now Czechoslovakia. Schwarzenberg is the name most Europeans associate with history. Vienna's Grand Schwarzenberger Platz, for example, was named after a 19th century Karl von Schwarzenberg who routed Napoleon in a bloody battle at Leipzig. His namesake, the 51-year-old Prince Karl, has turned the wing of the family's Baroque Vienna castle into a ritzy hotel. I'll skim along and give you a few high points. More than nostalgia, it says. Prince Carl's return is part of a trend that is more than nostalgia. At a time when communist idols are collapsing, the citizens of every East European country are on the hunt for replacement heroes. In their quest, they are often turning to names from the past. Citizens in Prague approach Carl von Schwarzenberg with a respectful address, Schmeitzis, or Prince. In Budapest, Otto von Habsburg, heir to the defunct Austro-Hungarian Empire, is greeted with cheers these days and has been asked to run for president of Hungary. Fascinating. He has refused for the time being. In Moscow's, uh, if Moscow's influence in Hungary and Czechoslovakia continues to recede, members of the erstwhile ruling families will have a special place in the rebuilding of Central Europe. Whether Prince Karl and Mr. von Habsburg go back as economic aides de camp to social democracies or as national leaders. Isn't it fascinating that in a few short weeks the communist hold on those countries is gone, that everybody agrees because of the deep economic malaise there is going to be a period of chaos, power vacuum, readjustment, perhaps even violent reaction in many Eastern European countries. Moments before coming here today, I watched part of a live news conference from the French island uh, down in the area of Martinique, I think it's Santa Lucia, where both uh, Francois Mitterrand and George Bush were giving a live news conference, and they were being asked questions not just about Central America or Colombia or the drug traffic, but obviously about Europe, about Eastern Europe, and about all of the entire geopolitical situation and it was asked questions about German reunification. I have no doubt that when they picked up that telephone in this very hasty, hitherto unannounced, ad hoc, off-the-cuff meeting between the French and the American president down here in the French West Indies was to discuss the economic situation in Eastern Europe and German reunification, because the French have reacted very negatively, as have the British, 
as have the Poles and some of the Czechs, to German reunification. When you listen to what some of them say, there's an article here, What the Future Holds, in the current issue of Time magazine, for example. Listen to this statement and analyze it for a moment by a Frenchman. His name is Dominique uh, Moissy. Nothing is more dangerous than to say to Germans today, we fear you. If we do that, we will create a Germany according to that image, the kind of Germany we would deserve." End quote. Analyze that statement. If enough of us appear to be fearful of German reunification, and they reunify, we bring about a self-fulfilling prophecy, and they get so mad at us that they become a militaristic state once again, and we only have ourselves to blame. That is one of the most incredible statements I've seen in print. Kind of blows me away a little bit. It interviewed people from all over Eastern Europe, many of them leaders. Here's what the West Germans said. His name is Heinrich Gurgel, West Germany. Quote, if reunification should happen, where is the threat to the rest of Europe? Please, let us stop thinking of reunification producing a fourth right built on the ashes of NATO." End of quote. I find many of the articles that I read today almost frightening. They stand my hair up on end. I go around looking like I had an electrical shock, because it seems like practically everything I read fits so perfectly in the entire scenario that has been my virtual raison d'etre for more than 34 solid years that has been the actual fierce point of every prophetic message I have given since I was 25 years of age. And to see all of these things beginning to come to pass is just a tremendous feeling of, of awe, of apprehension, perhaps a little bit of satisfaction, because it's very nice to be proved right sometimes, but nevertheless of apprehension, as I said. The insect says in this article about the various heirs to thrones in Eastern Europe, at a time when communist idols are collapsing, I read that, but they picked that up and put it in the inset, citizens of every East European country are on the, on the hunt for replacement heroes. A couple more quick quotes. There is a deep connection in history felt in this part of the world, not just the dates that fall within living memory, such as 1956 and 1968, the years the Soviets put down rebellions in Budapest and Prague, but also in 1914, the year the First World War erupted, and in 1918, the year the Austro-Hungarian Empire fell. In Prague, a young bearded writer from the opposition delivers his mimeographed manuscript to Prince Karl for publication. Quote, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I am a monarchist. Now is the time for the return of old things. Now, let's turn to an obscure prophecy in the Bible, and we will see a few corroborating prophecies, and let us speculate about a man called Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. Here's a man who appears several times in the Old Testament of the Bible as a clerk and as a man who was like the Secretary of State to that nation. In the 14th, make it the 15th verse of Isaiah 22, 
is a strange prophecy. Just right out of the middle of the chapter here where he's going along with other messages, the burden of the valley of vision, and then he talks about Elam and so on, and it seems to be talking about great battles. Then all of a sudden, right out of the middle of it, verse 15, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Go, get you unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What have you here? And whom have you here that you've hewn out you yourself a sepulcher here as he that hews out a sepulcher on high? Well, just like the pharaohs, some of these people built very elaborate tombs. And they would build them sometimes in the sides of a huge cliff or out of solid rock or a gigantic sarcophagus or, you know, a pyramid or something. And that was, of course, a sign of great arrogance and of great wealth and a sign of great power. And that graves and habitation for himself in a rock. Behold, the Eternal will carry you away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. There shall you die. And there the chariot of your glory shall be the same, the shame of your Lord's house. And I will drive you from your station, and from your state shall he pull you down. Now, if you look it up in some of the Bible handbooks, and you look up all the historical references here to Shebna, as I did once again just this morning, you will see that he was out there on the wall when Rabshakeh, who was the emissary of the Assyrians were there threatening the people inside the wall, and he said, please don't speak to us in that language, but talk to us in a different tongue because you'll get them all upset and so on. He apparently was later on taken down from the high office that he had occupied. But notice that it isn't really Shebna we're dealing with, but a little later on we're going to see that he is merely a type of someone else. In verse 19, I will drive you from your station, and from your state shall he pull you down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, that's the son of the high priest. And Eliakim now has a description attached to him that can only mean he is a type of Christ. And we'll prove that right now. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your girdle. And I will commit your government into his hands. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. I'm going to keep my place there and go quickly to Revelation 3 and verse 7. Revelation 3 and verse 7. I'm holding my place right there just for the moment. I want to come right back to that. Speaking to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says he that is holy. That's Christ. He that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. Now, who is that? Well, that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is absolute power. When he shuts, it remains shut. When he opens, it remains open. He has the key to the house of David. He is a direct descendant of that lineage. He is the one who inherits the throne of his father, David. He is the one who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now back to our prophecy in Isaiah 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, verse 22, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. That is not talking of a mere man. 
That's talking about Jesus Christ. So Eliakim, the son of the high priest, is a type of Jesus Christ. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house, language that can only mean Jesus Christ. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantities and the vessels of cups, even all the vessels of flagons, in other words, all of the various golden cups and vessels and brazen pots and pans and so on that had to do with worship of God in the temple. The entire wealth of the nation, the treasury of the nation, and therefore the authority and the very economy of the nation. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place prior to that time, when this man, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is exalted and placed in his stead, shall be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it shall be cut off, for the Eternal has spoken it. Now notice Ezekiel, the 21st chapter, and verse 25. And thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end. What time is that? When all sin is over, when iniquity has an end, when no more gangsterism and drug barons and lawlessness and crime is tolerated. Thou, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, your reckoning is come, your judgment is there, when iniquity shall have an end, thus says the Lord Eternal, remove the diadem, that's his kingly staff of office, take off the crown, the opposite of the coronation, a decoronation, take that crown off your head. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low. And who was meek and lowly and came in Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey with people spreading their garments and palm fronds in place so that the feet of the little foal could not touch the soil, or the soil and was called meek and lowly and riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey? But Jesus Christ, and abase him that is high. Who was high? The one who was called Jebna, the one who had apparently presumed to an office that did not belong to him. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. And it was overturned from Palestine up into Northern Ireland. It was overturned from there to Scotland. It was overturned again over the course of many, many centuries, and it landed in London, Westminster Abbey. And it shall be no more overturned, obviously implied, because it does still exist, until he come whose right it is, and I will give it to him. And whose right is it? Well, the one who's pictured as Hilkiah, the son, I should say, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who is a type of Jesus Christ. Now, right quickly, go to Luke, the first chapter. Luke, the first chapter. A scripture that little children are oftentimes asked to memorize at about the time of uh, Christmas, and in their little Christmas plays they will repeat these statements endlessly and don't have the faintest idea what they mean. Mary was told, Fear not, Mary, verse 30 of Luke 1, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. 
and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The Davidic covenant was an everlasting covenant between Almighty God and David, and that's the one who became Christ because he is the God of the Old Testament, and said that never would he fail seed to sit on his throne, that because David was a man after God's own heart, his progeny, generation after generation, somewhere, somehow, would always be seated on the throne of their father, their eponymous ancestor, David. It was overturned, overturned, overturned. And all of the Irish annals in Irish history alike talk about Teotepe and Haramon. And you can trace it back even through the charts that are available of the royal family of England today, right on back to King David in the Bible. Their lineage is traced to their roots in the Bible, which are of the house of Judah and David himself, who was the son of Jesse. And there does not fail of that family to sit on that throne today. The son of the present queen is about 41 or 2. He has a son who is about 7. And the younger brother, Andrew, is not the heir to the throne, but Charles is. But Charles' son is next in line after Charles. Now, if we go back again to the book of Isaiah, this time I want to come to the 28th chapter, we will read a little further of something which certainly must apply. Isaiah 28, verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. Mr. Ronald Dart lived seven years of his life in England and taught at Ambassador College over there. I've been to England so many times I've lost count. I spent a great deal of time over there in the aggregate, perhaps a week or two or three each year, I don't know, but we went so often and I was over there for commencement addresses and faculty receptions and one thing and the other. And my father gave so many sermons because of his own disgust over the fact that the British had seemed to precede us by at least ten years on the moral toboggan slide. Many, many years before the kind of obscenity available on American television uh, came along through our cable systems and our HBO and our nighttime movies, full frontal nudity was available commonly on the regular two channels, Home and Light, from the BBC in England. And way back in the 1960s, that was so. The British, as far as their degeneracy of being known as drunkards, uh, having a, a, a world black eye because of the image that they have projected in Europe, especially over in Belgium and in France and Holland, when British soccer fans have gone absolutely berserk and there have hundreds of people perished by being trampled to death, not only in England where it's happened time and again, and you know, you've, you've read about that, so I won't belabor that, but people have been trampled to death. They have had such violence at some of these soccer matches, you cannot believe it. The British have degenerated, and perhaps are on a moral toboggan slide headed downhill even a little faster and a little further than we in the United States are, but we're catching up very rapidly. Now, they are Ephraim, and the entire book of Hosea deals with those peoples, and there are many prophecies in that, in that book which have to do with how Ephraim sent to King Jared, a king that has never been discovered in all of archaeology or history over ancient Assyria and is unknown in history, 
to heal you of your wound, which was incurable, and it says, when they shall go, I will spread my net upon them, and they shall be taken, as their congregation has heard, as they have been warned. And it says, he could not cure you of your sickness. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 3 in verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Margaret Thatcher has announced that she probably will not run again. But for these past many years, Ephraim has had a woman who has been running the country. And of course, from the standpoint of the uh, aspects of crime and drug addiction and so on, you can simply let that be its own comment right out of the Word of God. But it does make you look when you see that Ephraim, or England today, has been called the sick man of Europe, that already Margaret Thatcher has made a lot of very cryptic statements about German reunification and about EEC aims and goals, and is really playing dog in the manger, and it's quite likely in the case of German reunification and immediate German neutrality that England is not only going to sit there imperturbable on her offshore island and say, I'm not going to continue becoming a part of a greater politically unified Europe, or I'm not going to become a part of a common currency standard when you implement such and pin it to gold inside Eastern and Central Europe, but it may be that the Europeans, led by Germany, will simply tell Great Britain that they are not welcome. I have always suspected, even to the point that I wondered whether England would ever become a part of the common market, and as you recall, for the first many years she was not. And when the first inner six were formed, then Britain formed what was called the Outer Seven, and for years with her own Commonwealth countries tried to have a competing economic block to go along step by step with Europe and failed to do so. And for a long time there was a great deal of reluctance on the part of Germany as well as France and the Benelux countries to admit England into the EEC because of their tremendous economic distress, because they were called the sick man of Europe. Chapter 28, verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, one of the greatest empires the world had ever known. And even in the 1950s, we were talking about the English or the British Empire that said the sun never set on the British Empire. And little by little, beginning with the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, and then Egypt, and then the, Egypt, the uh, I should say, the British uh, possessions all across the East African highlands, across the Horn of Africa, and for that matter, Botswana land, Rhodesia, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Tanganyika, as it was called, all gone. India, gone. The two Pakistans, or Bangladesh and Pakistan, East Pakistan, gone. And little by little, they're all gone. Hong Kong, gone. I mean, one after another, greater autonomy, greater self-governance, and the dismantling of the British Empire until now, England is just Britain, no longer great, but just Britain and one of the six economies in the European area, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and a strong one, which has a tempest of hail and destroying storm, and that is that rod in his hand that is identified in Isaiah the tenth chapter as Assyria that is going to punish those people and our peoples nationally. As a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand the crown of pride, 
that is the royalty seated on a throne, the head of state or the government, the drunkards of Ephraim shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and as a hasty fruit before the summer, which when he has looked upon it, seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. In that day, says the Eternal of Hosts, these, I'm sorry, shall the Eternal of Hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem. Notice how it fits perfectly with Isaiah that we read in the 22nd chapter and with Ezekiel, the 21st chapter, take off the crown, take away this diadem that he will fasten as a nail in a sure place to one who is pictured as the son of Hilkiah, who is called a father unto the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who has the key of David, who opens and no man shuts, which can only mean Christ, and the prophecy of Christ's birth said that he will come to inherit the throne of his father David. Here it says, In that day shall the eternal of hosts be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty under the residue of his people, and for a spirit of judgment to him that sits in judgment, etc. And it shows a picture of the second coming of Christ. Christ is coming to inherit a throne, and that throne does exist. There's an old scarred chair with a literal rock under it that has old weathered iron handles on each end of it that was for carrying, that I have seen many times, that is in the Westminster Abbey. Queen Elizabeth is about 64, I believe, when I believe it was her father died, and then it was 1953, my memory serves me that she was coronated, and I so well remember the prayer of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who included in his prayer that she would reign long and prosperously over, quote, talking to God, thy people Israel. In our very near future, we may be treated once again to the pageantry and the spectacle not only of a coronation in England, but the time ahead of us of uncertainty, of chaos, of economic despair, of perhaps riots and crime, of political parties at every conceivable spectrum in several Central European nations, a time of turmoil and upheaval before they try to put in some of the institutions with which they're completely unfamiliar because they have no experience with democracy. It may well be that some of those Eastern and Central European nations will turn to a monarch and that we may also be treated to the pageantry and the spectacle of some of these royals ascending to a throne in nations like Czechoslovakia and Hungary and some other nations in Central Europe until in fact, who knows? I may speculate. Maybe we will eventually see ten kings representing the United States of Europe. It's a thought, and it's something to watch for. I appreciate your article.